The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Welcome to the Kotke Ride Home for Thursday, July 8th, 2021. I'm Jackson Bird. New findings in the debate about whether the dinosaurs were actually already in sharp decline before the asteroid hit the Earth. A rumination on private ownership and how by 2030 we might not own anything at all, just subscribe to services. And an upcoming Pride and Prejudice-themed reality dating show. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. Since at least the early 90s, when the full discovery of the Chicxulub crater gave weight to the impact hypothesis, it's been pretty universally agreed that non-avian dinosaurs went extinct 66 million years ago due to a huge comet or asteroid. But a question that comes up every now and then is if there were other factors at play in their extinction leading up to the impact event. At the end of last month, a new paper was published in the journal Nature Communications that argues that dinosaurs had already been in decline for 10 million years leading up to the asteroid impact, a combination of climate change and decreasing biodiversity. Quoting Inverse, Further analyses indicate that the global dinosaur decline could have been precipitated by the decline of herbivores, explains lead author Fabian Condamine, a research scientist at the French National Center for Scientific Research, adding that herbivores are essential keystone species in ecosystems. His research suggests dinosaurs weren't able to recover from these dual blows. The rates of new species of dinosaurs emerging could not keep up with the extinction rates, leading to a decline in dinosaur diversity. In fact, the dinosaur decline was so severe, Condamine and his colleagues posit that the T-Rex may have only had one species left on planet Earth by the time the asteroid made impact, end quote. Climates overall were also becoming cooler, which co-author Mike Benton from the University of Bristol said in a statement would have made life harder for dinosaurs who relied on warm temperatures. The researchers agree that it's the asteroid that offed them eventually, but Condamine told Business Insider, quote, Many paleontologists think dinosaurs would have continued to live if the asteroid did not hit Earth. Our study brings new information for this question, and it seems that dinosaurs were not in good shape before the impact. End quote. The team used a data set of 1,600 fossils representing 247 dinosaur species from six of the most abundant families throughout the Cretaceous period and used Bayesian modeling to account for incomplete fossils and other uncertainties in the fossil record. Running the models millions of times, they looked at how the diversity of dinosaur species changed over time, including extinction and emergence of new species. Guillaume Guinot, who helped run the calculations, said in the statement to Eureka Alert, quote, In all cases, we found evidence for the decline prior to the bolide impact. We also looked at how these dinosaur ecosystems functioned, and it became clear that the plant-eating species tended to disappear first, and this made the latest dinosaur ecosystems unstable and liable to collapse if environmental conditions became damaging, end quote. 
This isn't the first study to suggest a pre-impact event decline in dinosaur species, and it's a position that's always been debated. A 2016 study published in Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences shared a similar proposal, and a study in 2020 published in Royal Society Open Science argued that dinosaurs were not in decline, but rather were flourishing just before the asteroid hit. The main argument in that paper was that simply looking at fossil records and modeling dinosaur family trees isn't enough because fossils make up such a small fraction of what was alive at the time. Quoting the Natural History Museum in London's Science News just after that paper was published last year, the main point of what we're saying is that we don't really have enough data to know either way what would have happened to the dinosaurs, explains PhD student and lead author Joe Bonsor. Generally, in the fossil record, there's a bias towards a lack of data, and to interpret those gaps in the fossil record as an artificial decline in diversification rates isn't what we should be doing. Instead, we've shown that there is no strong evidence for them dying out, and that the only way to know for sure is to fill in the gaps in the fossil record. End quote. Bonsor updated family tree data and conducted computational analysis that showed a less pessimistic view of the dinosaur's fate, primarily showing that herbivores were still dominating North America and found around the world right until the end of the Cretaceous, directly contradicting the new findings and also meaning that predators like tyrannosaurs would have continued to thrive as well with the herbivores as food. Even with more advanced modeling, the debate about whether dinosaurs were in decline before the extinction events will likely live on. But Condomain says, quote, Such a debate is not only about dinosaurs, but the diversification of organisms in general and how they respond to global events. End quote. Echoing this sentiment in a short piece in the New York Times perfectly titled Hot Dinosaur Summer and complete with whimsical pen and ink illustrations of dinosaurs in top hats and beanies, Matt McCann waxes about parallels between the dinosaurs' decline and our own. Quote, the research serves as a backdrop to consider this week's heat wave in the Pacific Northwest and the precariousness of any animal's time on Earth, including how quickly a more adaptive critter might take over. In the dinosaurs' case, it turned out to be the mammals. The dinosaurs were mostly so huge that they probably hardly knew that the furry little mammals were there in the undergrowth, but the mammals began to increase in numbers of species before the dinosaurs had gone, and then after the impact, they had their chance to build new kinds of ecosystems which we see today, said Condamine. Which makes me wonder, McMahon said, what animals might take over if we humans can't adapt? Are they currently underfoot, unnoticed? Other scientists this week discovered a previously unknown beetle species in the coprolites or fossilized feces of dinosaur ancestors that lived more than 200 million years ago. Perhaps 200 million years from now, super-evolved bugs will have their day, studying our coprolites for clues to our existence as the circle of life continues. End quote. There was a great long read in Gizmodo this week, well, long for Gizmodo, about the idea that we increasingly don't actually own anything. Products have all turned into services. A lot of people have gotten rid of their CDs and DVDs, as streaming services have made most media you could want available at your fingertips, and the devices to play that physical media are increasingly tough to come by. 
People do subscription meal services as opposed to buying a week's worth of groceries. An increasing number of people take ride shares or rent zip cars instead of owning a car, or subscribe to bike shares instead of even owning their own bikes. And there are all the think pieces right now about how we may soon become a nation of renters as opposed to a nation of homeowners. Back at the start of June, when I was discussing the potential of electric vehicles as sources of vehicle-to-grid integration, I mentioned the proposal from mobility strategists to have community centers own one electric truck that community members could rent out for certain tasks, discouraging the need for households to own multiple or even any vehicles themselves and instead rely on public transportation for most everyday needs. Could setups like that be the future? The World Economic Forum has been betting on it since 2016, when they predicted that by 2030, people will own nothing and be happy about that. They said in a Facebook video back then, quote, whatever you want, you'll rent, and it'll be delivered by drone, end quote. Overall, according to Gizmodo and a number of other pieces over the past couple of years, these trends are only going to continue because millennials and Gen Z, they say, like this not-owning-anything existence. We apparently prefer it, although I'm personally not so sure. Because when you don't own something, you lose a certain level of autonomy. Gizmodo points to the example of Peloton, who changed an initially free feature, one in which you just run on the treadmill without taking a class, into a paid subscription feature. There's a whole lot more drama to that, but it's a good example of how even with things we feel like we own, these days we often don't exactly. You paid however many thousands of dollars for a Peloton, but now you have to pay even more each month just to use it, an expense you didn't initially expect to have when you budgeted out to buy the machine. As Gizmodo says, quote, The reality is, when you buy a device that requires proprietary software to run, you don't own it. The money you hand over is an entry fee, nothing more. In 2020, Sonos retired its legacy speakers, many of which were still functional. It sparked outrage. Again, users had bought hardware and expected that their one-time transaction meant they fully owned their devices, but they didn't. By buying those devices, consumers bought access to Sonos's services, and Sonos effectively leased their hardware. That meant Sonos ultimately gets to decide when a device is at the end of its life, end quote. And this applies to so many devices in our lives. Our phones, smartwatches, tablets, any connected device in the Internet of Things. The illustration accompanying this article interprets it perfectly, showing a kitchen of connected appliances all displaying error alerts with the warning, subscription expired. And there are a lot of reasons for this model, as annoying as it is to most of us. Quoting again, Connected devices require servers. Servers cost money. When you, the consumer, pay a one-time fee, that doesn't help a company keep the lights on. It's why planned obsolescence exists. It's why Apple, a company that's known for its hardware, started pivoting to services in 2019. It's why Fitbit rolled out a premium subscription tier. Netflix is mulling cracking down on password sharing. And every other entertainment company is launching their own streaming service instead of licensing their content to Hulu. End quote. Gizmodo tracks a lot of this back to Section 1201 of the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, or DMCA, which, quote, basically makes it illegal to circumvent digital locks that protect a company's proprietary software. It's why it's okay for big tech to void your warranty if you jailbreak certain devices or force you to spend more money to get a broken gadget repaired by an authorized shop, end quote. 
And Gizmodo points out that this allegedly utopian idea from the World Economic Forum that we'll all happily rent anything we ever want to use won't ever work while these companies have the right to basically legally own ideas. I mean, is it really convenient when the companies decide to change things and that takes away features you depended on or forces you to upgrade even though your device was actually working just fine and you don't have the money to upgrade right now? Or when the company that you were originally loyal to makes so many changes you want to switch but everything in your home is connected through that one company so you have to change everything? And even if you try to be as unconnected or self-sufficient as possible, owning your own home and doing your own repairs, it's likely that homes will continue to be more and more connected. You may buy the house, but you might have to rent the software that the locks and utilities run on. And if something breaks, you might technically not even have the right to fix it yourself thanks to all the big companies who keep trying to squash right-to-repair laws. Quoting once more from Gizmodo, This is the reality of a service-first world. The power has shifted so that companies set the parameters, and consumers have to make do with picking the lesser of several evils. Even then, users don't really have a choice. The internet is now considered a utility, and it's not like we can put connected devices back into Pandora's box. You might be able to opt out now, but that's going to be increasingly unviable. Really, you only have the illusion of choice. This isn't new. As technology advances, we have fewer options to choose from even as companies tell us we have more choices than ever. End quote. Now, is it really such a scary thing? Is it so bad to turn over a little control in the name of simplicity and convenience? That's probably a matter of opinion. But if you prefer to keep that control, you may have to keep fighting for it. After the frenzied, hot Bridgerton winter we just had, NBC's streaming platform Peacock has just announced a new reality series based on Pride and Prejudice. What does that even mean? Will contestants have to perform complicated Regency-era dances while one of them scowls at the other one? Well, quoting Variety, The series, titled Pride and Prejudice, An Experiment in Romance, is an original format that will see a heroine looking for her duke. Transported to a Regency-style England, a group of eligible hopeful suitors will have to win the heart of the heroine and her court. Housed in a castle in the countryside, the heroine and suitors will experience that with which dreams are made of. From carriage rides and boat rides on the lake to archery and handwritten letters to communicate, they will be immersed in a time-traveling quest for love. In the end, the heroine and her suitors will discover if the ultimate romantic experience will find them true love. End quote. AV Club questions whether contestants will be wearing era-appropriate wardrobes, and if they'll only be allowed to hold hands and briefly kiss. No word on any of that or when the show will be coming out just yet, but it's being executive produced by one of the guys behind Amazing Race and America's Next Top Model, so it might actually have a decent budget behind it. And I really can't tell if this is going to be a total flop or do surprisingly well among the Bridgerton crowd. I am a sucker for reality shows where they transport people back in time, but even I'm not so sure about this one. Guess we'll just have to wait and see. (laughs) 
So I am going on a bit of a summer vacation. No show tomorrow, and then starting on Monday, Glenn Fleischman will be guest hosting the show for two weeks. Glenn is a longtime tech journalist and printing historian who spent the pandemic shipping out dozens of collections of type and printing artifacts called the Tiny Type Museum, which I'm a big fan of. His most recent book is Take Control of Cryptocurrency, which is available at TakeControlBooks.com, link in the show notes. So Glenn's got his finger on the pulse in a lot of different arenas that I think Kotki Ride Home listeners are into. I think he's going to bring some really cool and interesting insights to the show. Glenn also used to host the Election Ride Home podcast at the start of 2020, so we're keeping it all in the Ride Home family. One thing to know, Glenn is on the West Coast, so episodes might be going up a little closer to 5 p.m. Eastern than usual, but that is actually closer to when Ride Home shows used to go up. For any of you that are newer listeners, you may not know that the Ride Home slate of shows started with the idea that you would listen to them on your ride home from work at the end of the day to catch up on the day's news that you missed. We kind of shifted release schedules around when the pandemic decimated regular commutes, but now that some people are getting back to commuting and our schedules are kind of in flux again, I thought I'd just mention that in case you, like me, have found yourself listening to podcasts less because your schedule has kind of shifted again. So, you know, if you're commuting again, maybe consider making this show or the Tech Meme Ride Home a part of your commute experience. But whenever or however you listen, thank you for doing so, and keep tuning in to hear from Glenn for the next two weeks, and I look forward to coming back well-rested on Monday the 26th. So that is it from me for this week. This show was produced by Ride Home Media and Kotke.org. I am Jackson Bird, and I'll talk to you in a couple of weeks, but Glenn will be in your feeds on Monday. Grand Canyon University's RN to BSN online degree program makes earning your bachelor's in nursing possible. Balance online coursework with local in-person clinicals to position yourself for potential leadership opportunities in the time you have from wherever you are. Leaving room for what matters. Achieve your goals with your personalized plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu.